Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thanks for listening. Danny Brom is a psychologist and is the founding director of the Herzog Israel Center for the Treatment of Psychodrama, and he is in Jerusalem. Over the years, he has participated in many presentations and done multiple publications. In 2003, he was co-author of a piece on helping children cope with trauma. Dr. Brom, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. We here in South Florida recently experienced a school shooting, and there are two major points of discussion. These questions, of course, exist regarding any and all other similar acts of violence, so we are not unique. One of the questions is how and if we might prevent this type of thing from happening again, but that's not the question I'm bringing to you. The second question that I would love to hear from you, and of equal importance, absolutely, is how to help those who have directly or peripherally been hit by this shooting. So let's begin with a little overview, please. Define for us what psychotrauma is, a little history of how you got into it and how your organization was started. Okay, I'm a clinical psychologist and I started to work in the trauma field in 1979, long time ago in the Netherlands, because then there were some terrorist incidents of people that were asking for the independence of Moluccans in Indonesia and Holland was connected to Indonesia. And that was so the very early phases of the development of trauma services. And I started as a young psychologist to work in that field and that became the Dutch Institute for Psychotrauma. But in 1988, I fulfilled an old dream to come to Israel and came here basically thinking that I would do something different from trauma because who needs a Dutchman to tell Israelis what trauma is? But I was very wrong. When I came here, it appeared that the trauma services in the Netherlands were much more developed than those in Israel. And I found out that a lot of Israelis had trauma. No, we don't see that here, which was quite amazing. And it is what happens when there's a lot of things happening. It becomes a sort of a normalcy, normal reality. And then it's nothing to write home about. So already in 1989, I started to build this center because I saw that there were so many people with so many post-traumatic symptoms that really did not get any attention. And as you said briefly before we actually started recording, you made a differentiation between the traumas that happen immediately and perhaps people go too quickly into individual therapy. Can you expand on what was behind that thought? Well, when a lot of people go through trauma then there is a sort of a natural tendency of society to make that either into pathology and then you need treatment or it's non-existent, it's not trauma. We see that here in Israel where all youngsters serve in the army and and then there is a sort of a myth that after coming out of the army where people serve for three or more years, you either suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and then you can get good treatment or you have nothing. It's really making this dichotomy, which in a way protects people from feeling that they are affected also. And in Israel, everyone is affected by things that happen. Maybe it's less red than what happened just now in Florida, but there are terrorist incidents, there are wars, and everyone is affected by that. The big challenge is not to make that into pathology, but also create ways for a community 
to strengthen children, parents, adults in how to cope with that. And how is that done? Yeah, so community programs can be done in many different ways. Is First of all, it needs mental health workers to change their perception and not only think about individuals. So, for example, children in All schools now in Florida are probably quite anxious. Can this happen everywhere? And how do we know that? A few years ago, someone was kicked out of my school also. Is that a dangerous person? All these kinds of things are there and are not psychopathology, are just very healthy responses. So here in Israel, for example, we have started to create resilience programs in school. Children who become anxious through things like this don't need a psychologist. They need adults, parents, teachers to know what to do with them and to allow them to express themselves, to allow them to also sometimes not talk about it and have this normal way of processing trauma. Sometimes you need to talk about it. Sometimes you want some rest from it. And the most important mechanism that There's this mechanism of oscillation between re-experiencing and being afraid of what happened and sort of denying what happened. And mechanism is led by the arousal system we have in our bodies. So when you get overwhelmed by something, you tend to avoid and deny as a very healthy mechanism. So you can calm down and then you take the next piece of information and try to process it. So children do that in the same way. They play out what happened. Then they might become anxious and and then they don't want anything to do with it. And they need to be able to build a coherent story of what, what happened to them. Teachers can help children by doing doing resilience programs, meaning you can help children relax, you can help children identify emotions, you can help children giving them words for it, you can help them write stories about it and create a perspective that makes it easier to live with these things. One of the things that bothered me is the rapid assumption that the shooter who did a bad thing That's not the issue. But people are calling him a deranged animal. And that's got to be terrifying to trying to help someone understand that, yes, this young man probably had a very serious psychological problem. We'll, We'll find out more. But to feel that there are deranged animals possibly out in the community must just unnerve especially younger people as to the sense of safety and and the issues of vulnerability. Do you address this this such a, a violent description, which is absolutely scary? Yes, well, this also I see as a very natural response. You know, when people really feel threatened, feel that their lives are in danger, then they they create in-groups and out-groups. Uh, who is my friend and who is my enemy? And that is a very, very intuitive thing that is hardly conscious, but then people really bond with each other in very strong ways. Uh, you saw that also after 9-11 with United We Stand. Suddenly there are no divisions. Everyone is together except for anyone who is being seen as part of the threat. Then you get exaggerated responses like deranged animal. 
You don't want anything to do with it. We see that here in Israel also very strong that it's very difficult to create dialogues between different parties, uh, between Palestinians and Israelis, because in survival mode, you really try to get away from each other and you see the other as a demon. Then how do you help people get out of survival mode? What do you do in your experience there to help people get out of survival mode? Is that something that requires more of a protocol with a, a skilled psychotherapist? It seems to me that it would also come from the teachers in the larger community as well. Just your thoughts on this process, please, sir. Yeah, getting out of survival mode in a way is, is difficult because it doesn't have survival value. Getting into survival mode is, is just a thing we can do automatically. Good point. If you then need to or want to get out of survival mode, there is the whole environmental atmosphere that influences that. When people say, look out for deranged animals, that makes you again look around you. Where are they? How can I detect them? It keeps you in survival mode, and survival mode works with adrenaline. And in a way, it's a very complicated process, but adrenaline is very addictive. So there is, in a way, almost a wish to stay in survival mode. And of course, then leadership is enormously important because in this bonding process in survival mode, people look to get information from authority figures. And the information that is being given out by religious leaders, community leaders are very important. Are they now saying, okay, now we have to look out any moment it can happen again? That's one message. The other message would be, okay, we have to be together and we'll have to understand what happened and we'll have to take care of it. That's a different message. So leadership and also teachers have a very, very important role here in leading the process that children go through. There are ways to teach teachers how to, uh, what resilience is, what is regulation of emotion, how can you help children calm down. It would also seem to me, sir, and I find this all very fascinating, that a lot of it has to do with the parents because the kid comes home, something bad has happened, and they're frightened, and they look to their parents, and if their parents go into a survival mode, that's what they pick up to do, and it really just accumulates into a a very downward cycle. Your thoughts again? Absolutely. And the smaller the child is, the younger the child is, the stronger the influence of the parents. And we see that influence in early childhood that we have a place here in Israel, in the south of Israel, where already for 17 years there are very frequent missile attacks. Children grow up knowing that if the siren goes off, you have 15 seconds to get to a safe place. Now, then the question is, how do the parents mediate that? Is it pure panic or is it, and, and how do you make these transitions? Of course, when siren goes off, you have to run and be in a safe place. But then how do you get out of that? Do you then say, nothing happened, we're okay? Or do you say, wow, something happened, we are okay, but we feel a lot of things happening in our bodies. Let's take a moment. How often do these things rise to the level of a clinically diagnosable post-traumatic stress disorder? Or might we be using that term a little bit too loosely? 
Well, with people who are exposed, directly exposed or indirectly. Uh, there's, of course, there's a lot of different levels of exposure. Yes. Uh, there is the children in the school, there is the parents, there is the siblings, there is the community around it, then there is the media, and, and a lot of people are exposed to the media reports about it. And all these kinds of exposures have an influence, and they all can bring people to the level of full-fledged post-traumatic stress disorder. That can happen. I would think that probably between 5 and 10 percent, probably more in the direction of 10 percent of children in that school uh, will be severely affected and might need clinical intervention if no preventative interventions are applied in the coming in the coming weeks, months. And in your experience, I know a lot of people have spoken about such things as EMDR to be very helpful with dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder. Is there a protocol per se that you use that seems to be, and I would love to say universally successful, that would be ideal, but this seems to be a little bit better than others? If you look at, at the research on all of these different methods, and there are many methods, then the, the main methods, there's no difference in how effective they are. EMDR is not more effective than cognitive behavioral therapy or prolonged exposure or somatic experiencing or a lot of those methods that have been researched. And then it becomes a sort of an individual choice. What do you ascribe to and what do you like? I think one has to be very careful not to say that there is the one and only therapy method that is effective. That is not an evidence-based expression. What we also know is that not everyone responds well to these methods. There's always about 20 to 30 percent for whom this is not enough. I think we know more and more about the mechanisms in the brain and in the body that are responsible for those difficulties or expressions of the difficulties of being a post-traumatic stress disorder. So all the methods that help people be mindful, be in a meditative state, being able to focus on what's happening in their bodies and not be only a sort of an object that is being controlled by what's happening, but take a step back and look at what's happening in your body. All these kinds of methods are helpful and important. When you talk about the notion of resilience training, I'm very impressed with that. And I would suspect that if there is a message that we could give to the families and teachers and the community right now, is what you said early on is to not instantly turn this into a pathology, but look at it as a chance to build resilience and perspective and, unfortunately, for some people, maturing up and understanding what the world is all about. Is that a fair summary, sir, or would you add to it? Would you modify it? What would we tell the community, recognizing it's still very fresh? What would you tell the community as a whole? The community as a whole, I think one of the main issues that what people need after trauma is be together with each other. Yes. It happens in a natural way, but then some people who might have some difficulties in, in social contact might fall out of that of that boat. And it is extremely important to bond with each other, also to continue daily routine that has been proven as important. And social support means not only you have to speak about it. No, it's this flexibility in dealing with what happened. If you want to speak about it, it's important that it is possible. 
if you need a break from it, also that is important so that you can do this oscillation between dealing with it and avoiding it a bit and going back in and out. That is the movement we're actually looking for in coping with these things. I wish we had more time. Danny Brom is a psychologist in Israel, and he is the founder and director of the Herzog Israel Center for the Treatment of Psychotrauma. Dr. Brom, thank you so very much, sir. I, I appreciate this, and I also appreciate coming to the microphone on such short notice. It's appreciated. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity.